said there <laughs> also i'm sorry if you're showing that and you don't talk at all about the k-hole moment with where sugar ray's face turns into the scariest thing i've ever seen in any movie i don't know what you yeah well get ready for my casper the friendly ghost is queer coded uh, article coming no no we our next series will be <laughs> like the reclamation of het sis and we're gonna uh talk about straight coding for queer classics. So we're mm. gonna, yeah. <laughs> we'll start do with, do a complete retro of uh, Greg Araki and about how they're all secretly just uh, white sichet movie fantasies. Yes. That'd be I, good, I think people would dig that. <laughs> oh, I think based off of the internet's response, I think they, that's what they want. That's clearly what they want. No one seems. Uh, that would be that would be a sick troll. That would be, yeah. No one who's commenting on the. I'll bleep that out. No one who's commenting on the bleep post. See, they all seem ready for that. So let's get let's get that going. Bleepity bleep. <laughs> this is this is what you come to expect from us. We get to talk shop, get our frustrations out. Unfortunately, no. now we can't tell you what those frustrations are, but if you're savvy, you can figure it out. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, before I get too fired up, I, I don't need to be... No, angry. let's stay in the good vibes, because this is a good vibe. Good vibe one, it's a quick one. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah, we're going we're gonna to extend our cishetness into uh, two real cishet filmmakers... Speak for yourself. I am not a sachet. <laughs> so Will is telling, is showing the camera that he has a uh, Wonder Woman coffee cup. Oh, I didn't even notice. Look at that. You know what that means? I'm an ally. You knew damn well what that coffee cup was when you lifted it up. <laughs> yes, I was really hoping to show you. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love like a I love a, a joke coffee mug that you would get at like a come and go. I had a great Garfield cup that got broken, but it was my favorite cup. Made me yep. so happy. Hey, there's an idea. Garfield, a tale of two kittens, uh queer coded masterpiece. Let's <laughs> hold on. I'm gonna pin my thoughts on that real quick. <laughs> Dude, also seeing you say uh wait, let me I have to get the quote exactly right. Because it's a, it really gave me a chuckle last night, and then again this morning, <clears throat> and then again a little bit ago when you said, uh, yeah, I just asked that Wiley Coyote be in there along with that neurodivergent buzzard that can't catch bugs. 
I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to use the right terminology. Is, he the, is he the image for this episode? Uh, Beaky Buzzard is, I mean, the reason Beaky Buzzard is my favorite and also Beaky Buzzard is on the, uh, is the background of my computer for all the, when I have to scrub through these godforsaken fucking episodes. So um, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's an icon, a neurodivergent icon. Well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna use that exact Laura's picture you sent for the episode image. I'm not asking that one. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Please do. Please do. He rocks. Beaky Buzzard's amazing. He just he is. agreed. One of the most one of the most slept on characters in the verse for sure. Of all that have tried to capture Bugs Bunny, he <laughs> fails the most. Uh, and also, he's goaded into doing it. Unlike the rest of the characters, his. Uh, his WAP mom makes him like do it. She's like, "Come on, the beak. You gotta go to catching a rabbit." <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, a classic crazy. depiction of an Italian household: the overbearing mother and the neurodivergent <laughs> son. <laughs> uh, Those animators were smart, I must say. Yeah, yeah, they didn't miss much. Okay, so <laughs> before we get to these crazy, dare I say loony characters let's i guess let's what are we doing here today will what are we doing we're um as we said last time fulfilling our contractual obligation um with the music box to talk about the next uh the next entry in the ongoing highly sought after um series highs and lows Mm -hmm. um it's just been- heads up to everybody at the last one uh when we were switched theaters there were two murders as a result so i would say get your tickets early and smoke your weed in the back not in the front because people who aren't unable to come to these shows are starting to really while out um, yeah we will be non plus to see you smoking weed in the theater. Actually, I will be happier if I see you smoking like a blunt or a big fatty joint uh, over these these damn e vape things. That not truly. Let's, Get them out of here. Look, come on, guys. You losers! You can't. Oh, suddenly everyone can't drink beer anymore. They have to have mango cherry seltzers. Oh, suddenly we can't smoke weed anymore. We have to have some chemical from china that we don't know what does to our body exactly in fact makes your throat hurt worse than uh smoke yeah look what you guys have done i am now smarter than you because i smoke real cigarettes that's how stupid you guys look mm-hmm. <laughs> also just enjoy your vices quit it if yeah. you want to have a vice have a vice quit that shit yeah you live we live in such puritanical shame in this world and yeah Honestly, going back to smoking, we fixed my lazy eye. So I'm, <laughs> if it worked for me, it can work for you. There she <laughs> I'm going to hear that now anytime I see a lazy eye in the wild. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, uh, we're doing a, this screening on uh, Tuesday, November 15th, 7 p.m., that primetime slot. 7 p.m. Exactly where this belongs, because this is um, maybe the pinnacle thus far, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, this one, yeah, this is one of the one of the one of the greatest greatest things, and it also has been 
uh, talked about um, pretty much since the beginning. Well, I was going to say, yeah, this is the one we've always talked because this this pairing predates the inception of highs and lows. This goes back to uh, probably 2013 where I was stoned in my apartment and just decided. I think the olive Blu-ray of Keep Your Ride Up had come out. So I still don't know the 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 events that led to me making this double, but I'd like to think that uh, God. I think God or uh, some spirit of a higher plane intercepted me in that moment. Yep. And, um, and I played out like, uh, like a vision, like, uh, like, uh, what's his fucking name? Oh my God. How am I blanking on this guy's name? Dude. <laughs> like the character's name or are you just oh, like an actor at large? Ethan Hawke. Jesus. <laughs> Just okay. Now this is already ruined. But I was gonna say, just like Ethan Hawke and Dante's Explorers, when he has those visions in his dreams, that still works. Just cut to it. It's okay. The power of editing. That would that yeah, the power of cutting shows just how smooth <laughs> my stupidity can be sometimes. Well, but hey, I mean, you're already doing. Um, you know, you've already made the world a better place if even just one person who hasn't seen Explorers now watches it. So. That's true. And we'll get to maybe talking about yeah, we'll explorers get, a little yeah. bit here. We're There's on. a nice story <laughs> for the history of um, Looney Tunes back in action. But yep. I think we uh, I think we want to start with the movie that will start it all. And as yep. Will said, this is our last screening of the year. Uh, this is probably the, the genesis of highs and lows in many ways, or one of the things yep. that contributed to that. Yep. And I, yeah, we're, it's one one screening, so don't miss it. And and guaranteed for sure, both in house, no matter fucking what. These movies are both on thirty five millimeter prints. One of them is outrageously rare, um, and is not allowed to be shown really ever. Hence, one screening. Nope. So don't miss out on that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's gonna be sick. And don't worry. Originally, we were gonna do one in December, but it's actually we think of benefit. Because we're going to take this time uh, to um, not spend time with family and loved ones, but spend time with each other and guarantee that our next quarter announcement, which will come sometime in December, um, is going to be just fucking unreal and really get really get started on the right foot for the new year. Yeah, we'll have four doubles that are going to break your brains and move your hearts and yep. also take that time to work on another project. Something else that okay. I, yeah, we've been talking about a little bit. And that's all we'll say. Yeah, you might have figured it out. <laughs> uh, like some of those episodes, it's bigger, higher budgeted, more moving parts. Yeah. And but it's, it's going to get a lot more people to be forced who definitely would never hear about highs and lows or Oscar bait or see our cases. <laughs> A lot of unsuspecting people are going to see a lot of trailers for that first quarter of highs and lows. So we're taking over. Hey, twenty twenty three, we're taking yeah, over. We're taking over we're like these freaking gremlins in the yep. theater. Before too long, you're going to notice a marquee change. It's going to say, and when you see screenings announced, it will say uh, Oscar bait presented by Music Box Theater. <laughs> so. 
we're calling on all of you <laughs> to make yourselves be known. You know, we understand you're not the the view, the listeners that jack up the likes on the music box page, but start jacking it. Well, well, uh, you do whatever you want, actually. But uh, while you're doing whatever you're doing, just keep hitting those likes. Start bugging the theater. I mean, we're doing pretty well, but we need takeover. We're losing out to all these. <laughs> and the. So um, can I can I start with the wraparound? Yeah. Conversation starter for this double feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's get going. Let's get so, this is just my opinion. John can, of course, disagree if he does. But sure, I will. If you really want to get your brain primed for this double feature, um, if you're like itching and you're like, "Fuck, I don't know if I can wait till Tuesday," I might just watch these movies. Mm-mm. Yeah, you might fuck. There, there's other things you can do to get ready. The first place I will guide you, and I'm going to give like a little little brief thing. But if you head over to our friend Jonathan Rosenbaum's website, uh, there is a a fantastic piece that could not be a better primer for this double bill that is about the origin of the term Tashlin-esque. And it's really short also, truly. You can literally read it in like four to five minutes and you will learn so much. And it's also for anyone who loves movies, one of the most fun articles. (laughs) Um, It's amazing. But so he talks about the the birth of the term Tashlin-esque, which is in reference to one of our favorites, Frank Tashlin, still a great underloved filmmaker. Thank you. And the term the term was born when one Jean-Luc Godard uh, wrote a review of Frank Tashlin's Hollywood or Bust, and he started using the term Tashlin-esque. Um, great article. A quite a move, because people weren't really also saying any filmmaker-esque a lot, you yeah. know, at that oh. point. Well, yeah, I mean, Hitchcock had barely been reclaimed as uh, yeah. an auteur. Yeah. Um, so. But he was, that's why we love Godard, though, because like while him and his buddies at Kaiju Cinema are helping American and British filmmakers, you know, like John Ford or Hitchcock start to get the status they deserved, he's also gone to bat for someone like Frank Tashlin, which is amazing. Which people um, thought it was crazy. I mean, I think Andre Bazin oh, yeah. was like, y'all are nuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they thought they were fucking insane, crazy kids. Um, And so much so, Rosenbaum goes into more detail, but I just think it's funny. He loved that idea. And he loved Godard's review and what he thought he was trying to say. And so uh, Rosenbaum talks about two times he put his foot in his mouth. Uh, One being when he was talking to Jersey Skolomowski after King Queen Knave and called it Tashlin-esque. And I guess essentially Skolomowski was like, I don't know who that is, but if I if you're getting at what I think you're getting at, uh, I think you're wrong. And was not happy. <laughs> and then later, Rosenbaum also did the same thing with uh, William Klein and talking about Mr. Freedom and also mentioned Tashlin-esque. And William Klein very much knew who Frank Tashlin was and was also none too pleased. Which highlights, I love both those filmmakers, but, you know... Sometimes people are too up their own ass to receive a compliment. <laughs> well, and sometimes that even extends to uh, a protege of Mr. Frank Tash. And this is an anecdote I was told by someone who um, went and saw um, 
late in his life, Mr. Jerry Lewis speak in mm -hmm. Indiana, I think at Indiana University, and said that they asked the question in the crowd about his association with Frank Tashlin. Because Jerry Lewis learned so much from Frank Tashlin, and Jerry Lewis is kind of a bridge that divides probably Tashlin and uh, Godard and Dante. So anyway, they ask him this question about Frank Tashlin, and he just goes, ah, all you young kids with your auteur theory, God <laughs> damn, and then just moved on and didn't, didn't address it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, so if you're listening and you're not familiar with Frank Tashlin, one, before the screening, watch Hollywood or Bust or realize you have seen The Girl Can't Help It if you didn't remember, and realize that Jane Mansfield is clearly where Jessica Rabbit comes from and why Zemeckis also falls into this whole wonderful spider web we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, watch some Tashlin and have your mind fucking blown. There's a reason John Waters was so obsessed and correctly credits Tashlin for where he got a lot of his stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and um, Godard certainly uses a lot of the color palette that uh, Frank Tashlin uh, used and Dante really because um, I know we you know Dante is a gigantic fan of Frank Tashlin and mm -hmm. a lot of his movie I mean Gremlins 2 is probably his most Tashlin-esque one could say and I think what's interesting about Tashlin is he's an extremely subversive filmmaker which is something we've been talking a lot about lately and but, cartoons also look and, up his cartoons if you have not oh right 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 we'll we'll, we'll get to that so, but um he uh Tashlin is a, not necessarily a politically subversive filmmaker, but a culturally subversive filmmaker. And I think that's what makes him so interesting and so appealing to someone like Dante. Well, there's a, there's one quote from the article that I think is a good place to jump off. This is Rosenbaum talking about those two stories of Skolomowski and William Klein getting mad about his comparison. <clears throat> he says, what did I mean when I called these two otherwise very different films Tashlin-esque? In both cases, I was thinking about a deliberately dehumanized form of expressionism in the cartoon-like demeanor of the major characters that had bitter satirical overtones, loud primary colors that also suggested cartoons and comic books, and a spirited vulgarity that compromised or that comprised a kind of bittersweet response to infantile American energies run amok. And I think that's a great spot to get yourself in the mood for <laughs> this double feature and what these two are up to and the similarities and differences of someone coming from outside viewpoint from France who is obsessed with American culture and giving it, uh, you know, both like criticizing but heavily praising it. Um, and then of course, Dante coming from within it, coming from a 50s monster sci-fi background mm -hmm. of extreme Americanism, you know, to a certain point. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the complete flowering of his career I think. Um, oh. And yeah, the, these films definitely are uh, films about characters in search spiritually and literally for basically artistic freedom. I mean, there is a mission that goes on and Looney Tunes back in action. Well, we'll get to Looney Tunes, but they, they do share a, a really, a really uh, strong bond. I think stronger than some of the other ones, even though they don't literalize themselves as much. I think, the spirit of each of these films and the anger they're suppressing 
is really uh and not in the way we were talking about with like liar liar naked where it's a little no. more like these are two films that are way more in sync where uh whereas a lot of times we juxtapose two things against each other and show their contradictions and contrast you can find contradictions in this obviously but i think this one is uh more of a a respect that they they kind of feed and show off of each other that's less us trying to draw connections and more inherently embedded in both those films so Mm -hmm. that's why we're saying this is a special one and it's kind of special that because of prints and scheduling we could only have one but it's going to be the best and the only Godard showing in this city that was uh, not cynically programmed after his death to capitalize. So. Yep, this was announced long before our buddy went went the way of the dodo. Um, and also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe it's also the only showing that isn't a uh, tried and true shown nonstop at every art house in the country on regular rotation Godard film, I believe being shown. Um, and it's not, it's not that we're not d- doing this episode to shit on those movies, but maybe bound of outsiders a little, but yeah. But I think he would too, though. He let, he made fun of breathless and band of outsiders himself. Like, <laughs> you know, like Dante he, almost kind of makes fun of it in Looney Tunes back in action. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think so. But, um, but you know, yeah, we wanted to, you know, we, we're excited that we get the opportunity to show one of the movies from what we consider to be still probably his most neglected decade of filmmaking. Um, neglected and potentially strongest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we agree. I don't even have to say speaking for myself. We've talked about this a lot. We feel that 80s Godard is probably the best. Mm-hmm. It's an insane run, one after the other, of really wild stuff and a filmmaker pushing themselves and challenging themselves more than really any other filmmaker that I know of yeah. every single step of the way and yeah. immediately moving on um, and pushing further with whatever they did or didn't learn, you know, <laughs> from the last one. Um, yeah. And I think also like, I just want people to, I was talking to someone about this double feature the other day and they were like, well, I've tried to get into, um, and they said the thing that I hate, but they're like late, career Godard and I'm like okay so we're are we just uh, gonna agree when you say that you mean anything that isn't 60s and 70s <laughs> and they're like yeah okay cool so 40 years <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. well 40 plus years um but anyway that aside they were like I've tried to watch some of those and they're so heady and so dense that I get lost trying to keep up and, um, you know, and I feel like if I haven't read the text that he's referencing or whatever, that I just really can't gain access to it. And what I wanted to remind them and why this double feature is perfect, though, is that that's not what he's trying to do at all. It does not fucking matter if you have read, if you have, yes, you're going to tingle with delights at what he's doing to these texts and how he's referencing them and subverting them. But if you have not, don't worry about it. Like he's not, Godard's not that, especially at this stage, that kind of filmmaker where the goal is to make you feel stupid and feel left out. He's full of levity (laughs) and he's making this like rollicking movie about what you said, right? Like it's about, it's about these um, people trying to find artistic freedom. So don't like, 
if you don't, if you feel like you're getting lost in the literal quotes or whatever from these old texts, don't worry about it. Just fucking go with it. And there's so much that this movie has to offer that does not matter if you know the text it's quoting. It, these movies are almost Godard trying to engage you with the uh, the elemental delights of cinema, which are images and sounds. And yep. I think if you look at these movies as more of a kind of deconstruction or a fragmenting of narrative films, especially of the 1980s, they can be really rewarding to look at. Like a movie that gets almost as neglected as Keep Your Eye Up, Detective, um, oh. is just a, a dazzling film. I mean, this period that we're talking about, so like Godard... We all know his 60s period. It's the most famous period. And we're not talking shit on that period. It's just like, what's the point of talking about it anymore? It's been talked to death. You all know what it is. You've seen the Gene C RIP Gene Seenberg done dirty by the FBI walking around with the New York Times or New York Herald Tribune, whatever. All this shit. You know it. Got a haircut. Do a haircut. (laughs) So that period then gives way to the period that the infamous period that people like to also misrepresent or misunderstand. And although I agree this period is a little harder, but when he's working with Jean-Pierre Gorin. Uh, sure. That that's the kind of stuff that truly those do ask you to do some work. It's yeah, worth the, it. If you yeah, do the, the work. Tika Bertoff period. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's heady. That's for sure heady. But it's fun. There's some good stuff. Thank you. Yeah. But um, I can understand people not getting on board with that. But then he starts uh, kind of that middle period where he's working with his wife, uh, Anna Marie Melville. Uh, they do the very interesting Numero Deux, which oh. has a lot of fun uh, incest and poop jokes. Yeah. Um, just oh, a really. And this is an area where he's kind of figuring things out. He does the the France tour, children, semi-doc thing. He's starting to really figure things out. And then in 1980, oh. uh, he does Every Man for Himself, which is kind of his considered comeback movie. I think actually Numero, I think he claimed it was Breathless 2 to the, <laughs> to the like money people. <laughs> yeah. Rocks, <laughs> especially with that sex scene. If you've seen Every Man for Himself, oh yeah, sure. That's Breathless is what I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, a great, uh, just a, and you know, this is the period we're talking about now is when Every Man for Himself comes on because then it's just kind of masterpiece after masterpiece. You yeah. get action next, which, which one of those has Isabel Huppert showing her bare ass to a pig? That is might be every man for himself. It's every man for himself. I'm pretty either sure. way. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, I forget. Guy, come. Yeah, I think it is. So you have that. You have like first name Carmen. You have detective. My then, favorite, Hail Mary. Oh yeah, of course. How could we Hail forget? Hail Mary. Uh, yeah, Hail Mary is amazing. Then we come to the interesting period where Godard starts working with Canon. <laughs> yep. Canon films for all you fucking, and don't worry, I'm with you, but all you, you know, uh, lovers of when our buddies at Severn Films 
go back to some of their most excited roots when, when it's not just Franco and they're pumping out some Joe D'Amato fucking amazing action Vietnam exploitation stuff, you know, that kind of energy you expect from Canon films when you see that logo, but the kind of energy you would expect from a Joe Dante that you kind of see being mimicked in a movie yeah. like Hollywood Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's a very interesting period. And then he, he makes this movie King Lear. We're talking about Godard. He makes movie King Lear that features Molly Ringwald, um, <laughs> Peter Sellers, and two um, two just real uh, women loving artists, uh, Norman <laughs> yeah. Mailer and Woody Allen. Uh, Norman Mailer, a man who used to call his penis the Retaliator. Uh huh. All you, all you uh, Mailer reclamationists make me LOL harder than anything, by the way. And don't get me wrong, I will squeal with delight at any opportunity to revisit anything Mailer's involved in always because it's fucking incredible as a spectator. But it's amazing how much people love to forcefully forget how honest he was about how he felt about women. It was not a secret. It's not like trying to figure it out. He was clear. <laughs> Yeah, he said cocaine makes it much easier to beat women up. Yep. Which, you know, I bet it would. Yeah, probably <laughs> true. Um, yeah. I don't think that's a lie. So, yeah, yeah a real a real uh, gentleman, uh, this Norman Mailer, married like eight or nine times, uh, mm-hmm. stabbed his wife at one point with, <laughs> I'm not, that's not, it's just like, no, you're like, Damn. it's an absurdity laugh. That's what ha- when you read, that's what kills me when people bring him up and they're like, maybe he's misunderstood. I'm like, read the rap sheet, my dude. It's so absurd. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, like, I, when you I, realize I, that one of the nice things he did is that amazing sequence with him and Rip Torn, of course. <laughs> that's yeah. Mailer like being a sweetheart. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, there's something of an auto critique potentially happening with Godard and some of these people that he puts in there. I mean, a lot of his movies at this point are dealing with things like, um, I mean, I, I, I kind of like there's a couple of movies that lead up to this that kind of deal with the grooming of children in France because there was a uh, there was a law that was trying to be passed that would basically give children the same decision making abilities and rights as adults, which is pretty wild and Godard did more French honestly yeah, yeah it's very French Maybe more yeah. fucking French of a thing that was ever on the table let's just be clear yes that's that's yeah so <laughs> Godard makes some interesting documentaries kind of like addressing this and I think even every man for himself like he the main character expresses sexual interest in his daughter mm-hmm. so much well, so even that, that even the cold the the sex scene we were laughing about even the way that sex scene plays out is clearly very relevant to all of that that's happening. Yeah, exactly. Numero due that the the bourgeois parents are trying to sexualize their children in the movie in a way. Um, so by the time we get to King Lear and how he's casting Woody Allen and Norman Mailer, Norman Mailer who wrote a screenplay for it and then Godard rejected uh, and left and got mad at the movie because. <laughs> Guitar suggested an incestuous relationship between Norman Mailer and his daughter. Okay. The movie's King Lear. I don't know if you, if you don't know that story, I suppose you could probably figure out <laughs> what Guitar might be doing here. Yeah. 
Um, so he does King Lear, which is a very wild movie. Oh, and, and he also puts, since he's back in the hot seat in a positive way, we can't forget that a little young Leos Carax is also in that movie. That's true. That's very <laughs> yeah. true. Yep. Yeah. He's, uh, he's on his way to yep. doing his thing. So, yep. so King now we rips also, if you haven't seen it, please do watch King Lear. It fucking rips. It's really good. It's cool. uh, and seeing the Canon Films logo to start it will just melt your mind. Yeah, Godard's got like a like dreadlocks that are made out of like uh, wires and cables. <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> it's a bizarre movie, which <laughs> which leads us to his next film, Keep Your Right Up, which is the movie we're finally talking about that is uh, going to be in our double feature. And this is the last film Godard's going to make for the 1980s. I think it's 87 or 88. Seven, it's our birth year, my dude. That's we came right. from this movie. That's right. We were, yeah, that's so wild to think. I about. like to think we were both conceived, even though we're, you know, our birthdays aren't the same, but I like to think we we're both conceived to this movie, even though that's not true. I think so. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is before he goes on to make what is potentially my favorite, personal favorite Godard film, which is Nouvelle Vogue. Um, oh damn that's your favorite i didn't know that i just think that movie is beautiful it it's like uh you keep uncovering something new each time you watch it yeah that's a i hate to do this but that's a that's a fucking sick choice my dude i'll toast to that that's a sick choice yes let me get the rest of my smoothie Yeah, I had to toast with my I had to toast with my woke coffee mug because I'm for once I'm is this the first episode ever I'm not having a nice house probably this is and I lost the clips of you uh <laughs> you opening so we're gonna have the next one you're gonna have to give it a good crack okay if I I mean if it's for work it's for work <laughs> it's, yeah it's for work <laughs> um so, so but yeah keep your right up let's yeah, do it. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's it, this is not a movie that is easy to describe. Like most, it's best experienced. But I think the movie, well, you know, as most of these movies deal with, Guitard is playing himself, trying to get funding for a movie. He, he does in most of his movies. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. Like that's a it's kind of one of the great reoccurring things. Like Dick Miller in a Joe Dante movie. Can always count on old old Jean Luc dying, trying to get funding, financing, because yeah. you know it wasn't easy. And even though he'd had this kind of like reemergence in the eighties, it's not like he was a commercially viable filmmaker yeah. uh, investment. I mean, so much so that somehow Godard appeared on like the Dick Cavett show around the time of Every Man for Himself. It's like <laughs> it's just wild um it's amazing though and it's our our, often our favorite kind of artist it's the it's the the classic groucho shit man like he gets real uncomfortable if everyone seems to be on board because he does the correct thing if you truly are an artist who's interested in deconstruction if everybody seems to be on your page you're not working hard enough to figure it out for yourself either and godard did that every time he found success he was like huh i've done something wrong i'm seeing a lot of squares really loving this let's go harder <laughs> a lot of people like to attack Godard for being like grouchy or mean to some people now as a a very non-grouchy individual i uh little sweet peach 
I'm sure I've never say anything negative about anyone else. I'm hmm. always in a good mood. Well, that's true. <laughs> but that is pretty true. Anyway, okay, listen. I know that we have some some Agnes Varda fans out there who are still mad at Godard slamming, not opening the door for her and that hack Jr. Um, <laughs> oh. But to be to be honest, one of the coolest things Guitard ever did. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, he's known for kind of screwing over his investors and stuff. And listen, that's just like there had to be one. There had to be one literal real life Groucho Marx yes. in this world. And I'm sorry that you, you all have to want to hang out with them and you don't have to say you like them. But just again, we I, I harp on this all the fucking time on this show, but I will until the world ends. If we're all on the same page, it's going to get real nasty real fast. You have to have both. You have to fucking have both always. And no one's forcing you to hang out with them or watch their stuff, except this time we're saying you have to watch Keep Your Head. <laughs> yeah. It's like... You won't see him being grumpy in this one. He's not this grumpy is, in this one, yeah. No, this is well, goofy. As, well, yeah. but not not in the way you're talking about. He's not right, grumpy. Right, right. People talk about how he is grumpy off camera. Like, I know... Yeah. I mean, another funny thing he did was when Richard Brody's stupid ass was trying to interview him for his dumb biography... Uh, on Godard, which is really just a an expose of Godard's body count with yep. the ladies. It's really kind of a pathetic book. If you want yep. a good biography on him, Colin McCabe's book on Godard is very good. But yep. uh, mm-hmm. at one point when uh, Richard Brody was interviewing Godard, Godard had to break and said he was going to go get lunch and said for Brody to meet him at his house later. So Brody came back there was a note on the door that said you're much too stupid for me to keep having this conversation with you the best Jean-Luc I mean that's fucking awesome okay that's awesome and again we need people like that I'm sorry but we do yeah this is the guy who punched the producer of uh uh sympathy for the devil because they uh put in the the stone song at the end and which you know the full the full produced version wrong yes and because there's a point there's a fucking reason he wanted it not to be that yes and a lot of people like to be like well what's the big deal it's like well it kind of goes against what the rest of the movie is supposed to be which is this really wild juxtaposition between that and this kind of um rectian portrayal of the black panther party and the perceived um brutality of them which is uh which is quite striking and really beautiful and when uh he punched the producer he called uh i think he called the entire audience idiots and that they should refund their tickets and give it to the black panther party to uh, get some of their members out of jail so pretty pretty g if you ask me Um, and so with that in mind it's always we gotta swing that pendulum back that movie's called one plus one yeah, one plus one, not sympathy for the clubs. Yeah. And also, that's honestly a great movie to think about for the way he went and what he's doing with the movie we're all going to watch together. Yeah. For this yeah. show, because he's doing no, the subject matter is not the same and the goal isn't even the same, but the juxtaposition of uh, creation of music with 
uh, other things is the same. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if you're just, yeah, before we, we, we'll return to that point in a second, but if you're one of these like hype beast clothing companies that suddenly have a movie theater right now and you're programming that, you should just do a little, little Wikipedia search. It's, it's even, look, it's to the point where even if you look it up on Wikipedia, it actually says one plus one and then in parentheses, AKA sympathy. So even Wikipedia has it right now, which means in less than 10 seconds on your little phone, you can also call it the right thing. I know there's a lot going on with your pro this fictional theater. I know you've got climbing gyms to worry about. You've got puzzle <laughs> parties to worry about. Uh, <laughs> Is my point. We're having it's fun grouchiness. I'm not talking about anything that's real. This is a fictional thing. Theoretical. A theoretical a, place. A theoretical East Coast fart of a situation. East Coast? Yeah. Or West Coast. No, remember? Because it's fake, I thought. Right. If it were real, it would be the West Coast, but it's not. It's fake. It's the East Coast. Yeah. It's in the Metrograph's alley. <laughs> All right, we're we're all right. We don't need to take shots at people today. That's for yeah. We'll keep it. We'll keep it posy. Keep it posy. We're keep. We're trying to be posy because a lot of good posy things have been happening to us lately. So yes, we're uh, yeah. We're, we're kidding. We're gonna continue to be fucking grouches and say horrible oh. things. But for the sake of time, we're gonna ease up on yeah. It's just it's just because we've been going. We've been so disciplined with this fucking Zemeckis shit that we haven't had an episode where we just whine in so long. And that's why these keep coming out, even though we're both so excited to talk about fucking Godard and Dante. <laughs> it's like little yeah. bubbles, little burps just coming out. We can't help it. <laughs> I have here, you know, I have a quick you want you wanna you want me to complain about something real quick, like an old show? Here's a real quick one. New barbarian movie stinks. What a stupid movie. That movie sucked ass. Everyone kept telling me I'd kinda like it and I'm not gonna fully like it. Awful movie. People that know you told you you'd like that movie. Some people who I trust told me that they thought I might like it. Really? Yes. One being Corey Pop. What Corey? Well, Corey might get some money from those people, so we gotta. There you go. You got a little taste of us being um, critical. Yeah. So. And when we when we get successful with Oscar bait so that we can really get rich off of it. We're going to have an offshoot podcast called a 20 horror. And that's where we talk shit about everything. So yeah. Remember that when we expand, there will be spinoffs. Yeah. There'll be an a 20 horror coming to your ears. <laughs> yes. We're going to try to write the, we're going to try to sober you all up. So, um, with that, with that, you should watch, you should come watch, keep your ride up. Uh, it's going to be, it's also, I've never personally got to see this with an audience ever. I've never seen it with anyone but myself. Um, but revisiting this the other morning, um, I was actually pretty moved. I got to say it's a beautiful movie. It's beautiful. And it does that thing. Like I, I laughed a lot. Also, I giggled a lot, but it, it does that thing that people love to forget that Godard's also good at because everyone loves to just either talk about him being an idiot or him being only text heavy. Um, yeah. And it does that amazing thing where I truly like had those moments where it's a little bit hard to breathe because you're overwhelmed by just the joy of 
filmmaking. Yeah. It really has some of these moments with the intercutting between the music and back to what, you know, Godard's character, the idiot is up to um, that really overwhelmed me. And I was truly like, when it ended, I was like, Oh my God. I like, I forgot how affecting of a film this is. And again, that's just an argument towards like, please don't worry about this being the, uh, being the um, Ziga Veritas stuff. It's not there. <laughs> again, not. we this are constantly an essay film by any stretch. We are constantly trying to take the task every lazy reviewer who's ever existed and has spawned a thousand parrots. Keep your eye up. It's really a joyous fucking experience and ultra rare to experience with people on a 35 millimeter print from some amazing angels we cannot mention. Yes, we can't. Well, Will, let's just say Will had to take one for the team to get this print. (laughs) Uh, And not in any of the ways that I enjoy, so... (laughs) Yeah, because it was consensual. <laughs> Good. Every time. You always got to get it there. Yes. So around this time, like, <laughs> around this, okay. Um, what we're doing right now, because we're talking about it, we're both accidentally trying to do the thing that Godard loved to do. And in a moment where there's potentially some success, uh we were both trying to ruin it as much as we can yeah this happens all the time i'm always trying to like say something smart i'm reminded of my high school principal things go off the rails it's (laughs) it's just tough sometimes trauma is real and olivia hurt you uh godard around this time is starting to give a series of talks at some university i think in canada i don't remember where He he publishes a really great book, which is somewhere over there on my shelf. Well, I mean, he doesn't publish it. He does a series of lectures uh, that eventually get turned into this book that are quite indispensable and quite, uh, quite obtuse readings, very obscure sort of uh, stuff. But that's why you love the guy. So work for your for your godard pearls of wisdom that's where you go exactly so around this time this is where godard starts coming up with the idea for his what many would say his greatest work which is the something like it's like eight hour i forget the exact running time his uh, i think it's like nine thirty-five or something yeah, right? yeah his histoire du cinema a fantastic uh essay collage whatever you want to call it this just a ama- dazzling uh display of cinema desaturated sped up juxtaposed with basically this was godard trying to come trying to mine and investigate the failures of hollywood um specifically around them addressing stuff like world real world atrocities like uh, the holocaust so um mm-hmm. he does this thing which yeah com- you know you get a bunch of different you get hitchcock and chaplin and johnny guitar with nicholas right you get all these things kind of like combined together with real world footage and about i would say almost 20 years before that in hollywood at a unit well not i guess at a university in la a young joe dante is splicing together 
um, what was about four, seven to eight hours at the time now is about four to five hours. Uh, his own video compilation called the Movie Orgy, where he is taking shit like our favorites, Abbott and Costello, mm-hmm. um, monster movies, uh, sci-fi movies, commercials, uh, guest appearances on television shows. He's taking all these things of pop cultural ephemera in throws it in this kind of dizzying mixture when he actually projected it they did two projectors and they would do kind of an experimental tony conrad thing of like switching the projectors doing you know some a fun experimental thing that was uh a crowd pleaser and ran pretty long Uh, a lot of people really liked its subversion of kind of the american myths and dreams being kind of curdled and unfurled before your eyes so much so that Schlitz even uh, sponsored it. Which is what keeps the dream alive, Vice House sponsoring us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's go for Schlitz because that's a drinkable beer. But in fact, I would say Schlitz may be the greatest of all the American macros. Oh, well, I mean, you get no fight from me there. Okay, at least we agree on that. No, I just have to drink more Schlitz to get drunk. That's literally the only reason I like Vice House. You know this. That's true. <laughs> And to me, that's why I like Schlitz. <laughs> John drinks for pleasure. I drink for uh, bodily obligation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rhymes with schmalcoholic. It's very similar to that. <laughs> yeah, it's quality over quantity. You know, that's the difference between yeah. Will and I. Um, <laughs> Just if you're a listener out there and you're like, God, I've wanted to buy these guys some beers. I know what to get John, but I'm never at a bar shitty enough to get anything Will likes. Uh-uh-uh. Incorrect. I will drink anything. You will. Just a <laughs> So Joe Dante does this fucking incredible thing. Also, real quick, by the way, we're both idiots. Histoire is like also four and a half hours long. Yeah, but but didn't it run longer at one point? Yeah, I think there's like lo- there's like longer versions, but I don't think we've ever seen it. I, think I don't think so, yeah. I think the only thing you can see is like the four and a half hour one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So we're, we're kind of making this connection that Dante and Godard both like to cite other works in their movies. Uh, they do it in different ways. They come from different experiences, but nevertheless, they swim in a similar milieu so much so that, um, and we promise we're not just going to go through everything in the Dante filmography, no. but Right what, I'm trying, what I'm trying to uh, show here is a path that leads very directly and influences Looney Tunes back in action. So he does the movie orgy. He gets an, he starts cutting trailers for Roger Corman. Um, he eventually gets offered to do Hollywood Boulevard, a film with Alan Arkush, who would go on to do uh, Rock and Roll High School, Get Crazy, a lot of great films. Um, Some of the best, but also fall in the Tashlin-esque world in yes. different ways, but all this shit falls right in comfortably. Right. And Dante will do some co-directing on uh, Rock and Roll High School, um, some the musical girls' bathroom number, which is one of the best parts of the movie. He would do that. But he, he was there mostly when Alan Arkush fell ill. But for Hollywood Boulevard, this is way more of a Joe Dante debut than an Alan Arkush debut because we are starting to see a lot of things that are going to obsess him. Dick Miller. Uh, <laughs> Fucking, the, uh, 
Robbie the robot showing up at the end of the movie, which is going to happen a lot more. <laughs> you have and some Planet X references always. Yeah. God damn, he loves that. Yes, he does. Also, this movie is a mishmash of a lot of different genres. Um, there's some cartoon esque shit happening. There, uh, it's a slasher movie too. <laughs> <Weirdly laughs> no, that movie is a slasher movie that kind of it predates Halloween. Um, it comes after Black Christmas, but it is technically, especially one sequence, you know, slasher movie. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got Paul Bartel, who Will loves. Huh. I mean, it, look, if you if there's ever one person to just click on their name on IMDb or Wikipedia, and yes, get most excited if he directed it, but truly just watch every single thing that he ever touched or his face is in. Because even if the movie sucks, you're going to have at least one scene of transcendence. I love yeah. him so deeply. <laughs> well, and apparently that's why Corman had him on this movie. He and Jonathan Kaplan are both in the movie, and he had them there. Just, just yeah. those that Jesus Christ. You yeah. know, we all know your Kaplan heads. You got to be. Like. <laughs> and they would help uh joe dante like at one point they were like i think you need a close-up here to connect these two scenes and jante was like that was one of the best lessons i ever learned (laughs) um so he's doing this he's working on this movie that is kind of a satirical expose of hollywood uh he goes on to make great genre films like um and politically savvy films like uh piranha um which stars kevin mccarthy who we're going to see a lot more of uh, he's got The Howling, one of his most beautiful looking movies, but is starting to now show this kind of cartoon-esque thing with uh, its portrayal of the werewolf in that movie. He eventually does a movie called Gremlins. But before he does Gremlins, the biggest thing that he does that is going to take us to where we are is he does a segment for the Twilight Zone movie. And just to be clear, before your stomach turns... He does not do the one where anyone died, and he has zero responsibility to that. So he, he has zero responsibility to zero. that. It's not a sad segment. Not yeah. John Landis can go fuck himself. Yeah. Um, but and Steven Spielberg delivers one of the worst things he's ever done. Sad to see. Uh, George Miller does a quite good one that doesn't really have as much of a thematic connection to the others. I don't think he read the rest, which is really tracks with George Miller. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was like, "Fuck you guys, you're lucky I'm here." Yeah, exactly. Well, so he couldn't be there for the end when John Lithgow is getting put in the straitjacket. That scene is actually shot by Joe Dante. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, uh, George Miller wouldn't. Oh, shit, that's cool as hell. Yeah, right. so nice. that's kind of cool. Um, but the Dante segment is about a kid who basically can't won't grow up and wants to live in a cartoon world where he like like chuck jones's duck amok can just erase people's faces uh, or parts of their body he can um he can basically control them and he makes them sit around eating potato chips candy and hamburgers and watch cartoons so much so that apparently kevin mccarthy would not stop eating the potato chips on the set he had the munchies like crazy apparently and was just like Dante would be like even between scenes the props that we needed he would go eat them and you have to tell him to stop they eat those for the next scene well they were smoking that good weed then too so oh I'm sure they were Dante I think oh yeah come on really good loud weed (laughs) yes Uh, 
he never talks about it, which is interesting, but we all know what's going on there. Well, it's because I think he's classic. He's a, I think he's a classic dude because he grew up in the time where literally people were still going to jail. So I think he's a classic dude where he's like, um, anyone who talks about any of that shit can get the fuck out of our group right now. We don't talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, that's how it should be. That's how it should be. Yeah. So you don't, and you don't, you don't fucking show off either. It's the way to do it. Right. Talk is cheap motherfuckers. So this starts this kind of, uh, literalization of the cartoon world coming into play with humans uh in a dark very dark way uh but this is also the start of his collaboration with jerry goldsmith his composer who one of the greatest director composer partnerships in history of cinema they worked on everything together including jerry goldsmith's very last movie he did ever looney tunes back in action and it's and honestly a beautiful score. Beautiful. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. So he does, because he does the Twilight Zone, he gets the job for Gremlins. Gremlins uh, is a, he's probably his biggest hit. So much so that he features uh, toys of the Looney Tunes in it. We see them show up. But it was a highly compromised movie for him, considering he wanted to make a nastier film in the studio he got another shot thankfully he did but the studio which i think it was warner brothers like most expensive merchandising campaign in history at that point so they're trying to really make these mogwai a, a thing so this idea of the commercialization of this, these properties is starting to kind of germinate in his head a little bit um he gets to do explorers after that which we referenced earlier he goes through absolute hell trying to make this movie so much that the studio doesn't even let him finish it. They just, the studio changes hand. They, this happens all the time. Studio heads changed. These people came in, didn't get it. Uh, didn't want to pay more for it. Um, and they just kind of released it unfinished, but it's a film where these kids uh, who he said they were modeled on Huey, Dewey and Louie from the uncle Scrooge comics. They go into outer space basically to they construct a spaceship. They go into outer space to meet aliens and they're let down because the aliens are just pop culture junkies and greet them with a what's up doc. And uh, it's a funny, it's a funny idea. And it's still, despite, despite how it ended up, it's still a really fucking cool movie. Yeah, definitely. Even despite like kind of the Dick Miller storyline, just kind of stopping where you're like, I want to see where that goes. It, it, always thwarted poor dick miller it should have been the biggest star in history at least he would always find work with dante so yep. so he does explorers that is just a, a hellish thing for him um but then he has uh some fun in the next couple of years he gets to do the burbs which didn't do well critically but it kind of shows this um his movie obsessiveness considering that movie all takes place uh, on a studio back lot where all these houses that had been pushed off the main lot, you have like the Munsters house, you have Deanna Durbin's house from the thirties and forties was in a lot of Abbott and Costello movies. You have um, the Peyton place house, you have the house from Harvey and they're all on the street together. So he turns a whole neighborhood into these iconic houses. And it's one of his most freewheeling movies uh, in yep. existence. He has a little fun with production on his next movie, Inner Space, which he claims is his most happy production. 
Then he gets to a movie called Gremlins 2. Now, Gremlins 2, this movie was pushed in his face because they needed uh, a big thing, IP capitalization for that summer. So they said, we need Gremlins 2 out. He says, fine. They say, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> He's like, oh, wait, wait, say that one more time slower. Real yeah, quick, write it down, do maybe. Mean, yeah, do you mean that? Okay. You sure? I got some okay. thoughts. I got the Hulkster on the line. You sure? Yeah, we got the Hulkster. <laughs> okay. You all, if you haven't seen Gremlins 2, this is a movie that should never have existed. God, no. This is a movie that never should have ever been made. It is a movie where Joe Dante is essentially shitting on the very first movie that gave him uh, kind of unlimited success, or at least for a period of time, his biggest hit. Like our buddy Robert Zemeckis, he was kind of shepherded around by Steven Spielberg. And I think that uh, Spielberg saw in Zemeckis and Dante um, this kind of id that he could never really fully engage with. And so he really liked propping those guys up because they could be in many ways freer than he could allow himself to be maybe at that time. So Gremlins 2 is... I mean, we're we're not gonna go, we're not gonna go into Gremlins too, but I would say it continues a um, I would say it is a very nice lineage between Looney Tunes back in action because this is where he got to do whatever he wanted without studio interference, and the result shows because this is his dream of finally doing the Olsen and Johnson Hell's a Popping uh, or Crazy House or these films that they made. Um, and it continues this Tashlin idea of subverting the very nature of the making of this movie, uh, setting it inside this mega mall with this uh, like Ted Turner Trump-esque figure. Um, I mean, it is just an angry movie that is proves just how fun he could be. He doesn't have that angry, that subversive anger that someone like Zemeckis has that he tries to subdue with tenderness and sentimentality. They're very similar to Zemeckis and Dante because Dante chooses not to use that anger or to subvert that anger with this kind of like sweetness. He chooses humor, kind of this almost like sophomoric, like innocent humor. Mm -hmm. Like his movies can get really misread as like for kids style shit when they're he's using that to greatly attack certain ideas that he presents in his movies so looney tunes gremlins 2 they both kind of had like they're very similar in that they discard like a straightforward narrative uh in favor of kind of a anarchic sensibility one achieves it more than the other and that could be the result of having no studio interference and an unlimited budget so this is very different from what's going to happen with him in Looney Tunes, but he does get a dose of rea you know sad reality when Warner Brothers decides to dump the movie, or, or they want to release it later on July fourth to go up against Touchstone's Dick Tracy. What a move to uh, try to put that up against Dick Tracy uh, as a way to slow its grosses, and they basically just used that. Um, they just kind of used it as a, they didn't know what to do with the movie. They didn't, the studio did not understand Gremlins 2. So they just Which kind is of. Which Because I, I imagine to a millionaire who runs a studio, watching Gremlins 2 is probably the equivalent of like chugging laxative. Like to drink it, like treating laxative, like a bottle of laxative, like a fucking robo rocket. 
Like that has to be what it's like and what it feels like when it hits. <laughs> you know, like, truly, because it's well, like people experienced it watching in the music box in October again. So many people were just like, holy fucking shit. Like this is not a studio movie. Correct. Like that is, it's amazing. Yeah, we don't and get much of these. It also makes like Amazon Women on the Moon look tame, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty tame <laughs> movie, but... Well, his segments are sick. The rest of that movie kind of sucks. Yeah, the venereal disease episode's good. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the Invisible Man is one of the best, and apparently Dante wanted to do that yeah. segment. And it's good how it is, but can you imagine Dante doing it? Well, he I'm sorry. He should have done all of them for yeah. my mind. Yeah, Lan- again... Proving that John Landis is a fucking idiot. So while we're trying to uh, resuscitate Joe Dante, we are taking down Mr. Landis. Yeah, my dick, Mr. Landis, and your stupid son. Anyway. Well, the son, the son's the ultimate thing because he's truly talentless. Yeah, <laughs> Landis. Yeah, his father at least did have some talent. Landis made some dope movies despite being a monstrous human being in yeah. the process. Max, on the other hand, nope. Yeah. Right down the shitter, that guy. I'm shoving him down. I'm kick, I'm hitting him down with the other end of the plunger, not the plunger end, the hard wooden end. <laughs> Breaking his skull as I try to shove him down into that fucking toilet and flush it. Trying to get all that rainbow hair to fucking flush. <laughs> okay. No, let's not get sidetracked on the Landis's. Fuck them. So, the Landis. Um, <laughs> so, weirdly enough, though, all this with Gremlins 2 leads him to possibly, quite possibly, make a Looney Tunes movie. Now, Warner Brothers was working, uh, they had a writer who was working on a biography of Chuck Jones. And it was- this alternate timeline that could have been. I know, okay, everyone, listen to this, and I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but uh, this is what we could have had. This is crazy. So, yeah, this is right, this is crazy. So. There was a script going around for something called Termite Terrace. It's at the <sighs> beginning of Chuck Jones's time at Warner Brothers, going through the early 30s, where he works his way up through the studio as like a cell washer, eventually to an animator. And along the way, he interacts with people like Tex Avery, Bob Clampett, Frank Tashlin. Only legends. Uh, only legends. In fact, Apparently, the rumor is the script, which no one can read, it's still locked. It's under lock and key by Warner Brothers. They won't let anyone look at it or make it. It's like that. Uh, in the <laughs> yes. Right. Apparently, the movie had a lot. The script had some digs at Bob Clampett, which his family didn't like. So they had to change all the names so that you don't even have Chuck Jones. do. They, they had to change every name. But in doing this, Dante found that it gave them more freedom and they could kind of go off topic and do more of what they wanted. It was so good that Spielberg read it and said, I will do whatever I can to back this movie. Now, usually in Hollywood world and Holly weird, when Spielberg says, I'm going to back something that helps it get made. Unfortunately, what we're dealing with here is very old IP, according to Warner brothers. So much so that that is not how they wanted to bring the Looney Tunes back. In fact, they were mad at Joe Dante on Gremlins 2 when Chuck Jones animates the introductory sequence with the fucking Looney Tunes. And they didn't like how uh, Bugs Bunny looked or something. 
just just these people are sick they're sick they're sick fucks these these money people at these studios literalization of asinine all the people who felt that way oh it's 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 wild to think and they didn't like uh yeah they, i mean they tried to cut the scene of, of gremlins 2 with chuck jones reanimating his beloved characters which crazy. is yeah crazy so at chuck jones no matter what the result is it's just it's wild so it's I guess that shows that they did not want to back Termite Terrace because um, as this young Chuck Jones goes around and interacts with all these um, these animators at the studio, he is also interacting with the cartoons as they come to life from the drawing board and come out and start interacting with everyone at Warner Brothers. So it would feature the Looney Tunes and also the history of their creation. Uh, studio did not want to represent the characters that way. They said, quote, to they didn't want them to serve someone else's story. <laughs> in, a, in other words, not serve the person who gave them life and meaning story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what else to say on that. So they instead decided to take those characters. The merchandising department stepped in and found a way to market those characters and that's what gives you the movie space jam a movie that really broke chuck jones's heart and um it broke me on the most recent revisit i gotta say yeah maybe if you're a theater and you program as one of your employees picks maybe don't maybe don't do that i remembered it as more of just a you know like whatever it's a fun time capsule and I still love that. I obviously still love the best joke in the movie about Larry Bird, which is Larry's not white. Larry's clear. That's good hilarious. Very good hilarious. That's a result of Murray's improvising though. Yeah. 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 That, that shit's good. Honestly. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but the sports stuff is kind of good in space jam, but well, it's the, a sports movie. I mean, the, it's way that, the way that the cartoons are treated truly devastated me. Like I was depressed after watching it. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, the tunes are definitely not serving someone else's story in that movie. No, the the tunes are. Yeah, they're getting spotlight. It's not uh, famed adulterer, greatest NBA player ever lived uh, story at all. So real ally for cigars. <laughs> yes, along with our boy Slicky, Slick Willie. So. So that's what you got. Um, and in fact, they kept trying to make sequels off of it for a very long time. Uh, they tried to make a space golf movie with Tiger Woods. They were going to do a space skateboarding movie with Tony Hawk. <laughs> they were going to make like space combat with Jackie Chan. Um, that's This is all real. These are all things that got shops around. And at least someone, you know, the cocaine high was coming down and they were like, this is a terrible idea. And they had that panic attack. Like you have when you're at a bar and your friend who has the bag has disappeared. You need <laughs> just that one little bump to keep talking to the cutie at the bar, but suddenly your mind is breaking and you're yeah. feeling, you're feeling all of that cocaine dry up certain membranes of your head. Starting to feel like a Landis. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess that's how I would assume that. <laughs> so, um, so those don't happen, and Dante moves on. He does a great movie for HBO called The Second Civil War, which I just want to point out is, you know, there's more to this guy than if you don't believe what we're saying, he slips into his movies, you should watch The Second Civil War. It's very fun. Also, a made-for-TV movie did called Runaway Daughters. Oh, also great. Yep. Very, very lovely movie. 
But he does a movie called Small Soldiers, which is going to link us very well because this is a movie about the military using military equipment to make children's toys. It is a movie that is about merchandising. And as we pointed out, Joe Dante does not like the merchandising departments of studios. They have screwed him royally many times. Mm -hmm. um, so he delivers this kind of movie that he considered to be Gremlins 3. Uh, it's uh, it's a movie that we still haven't caught up with. And for sake of time, we're not going to go into it. But you it, could uh, seven hours on Small Soldiers. <laughs> yes. But if you haven't seen Small Soldiers, please, please see it. Maybe it'll be part of a highs and lows. You never know. I was going to say, wait for wait for us. It'll be coming. It's coming. Um, but there's going to be a lot more to say on Small Soldiers one day. But it does link us to what is going to be. Uh, there might have been something else in between Small Soldiers and this. I can't remember. But um, it might have just been television shows because I know he did like CSI. and. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else significant. There might be. We're forgetting, but it's okay. Whatever. Oh, we did forget to mention when he was working with Spielberg on Amazing Stories. We might have talked about this on the other episodes, but he does do a quite good Amazing Stories called yeah. The Greeble. So good. Which is about this creature. I love the ambience of that one, too. I love the rainy day stuck inside at home yeah. of that movie uh, or that episode uh his boo episode about the ghosts that move into the porn star's house sounds way better that one that one's not as good as it is unfortunately it just should be but it's okay but it is funny that for all the halloween episodes he would do for uh hawaii 50 and csi he called them all boo yeah <laughs> so that's kind of funny <laughs> Oh, um, well, but, could have directed Medea's Boo, we'd be in a better world. <laughs> yeah, well, I would, yeah, I would, I'd see that movie. Um, so Small Soldiers, he's back with having to deal with people like Burger King wanting to um, kind of retcon his movie to make it easier to sell their their crappy cheap toys. So around this time, we mentioned that Warner Brothers is trying to do another Space Jam. Chuck Jones dies. And there's a script going around around this time that Chuck Jones had apparently taken a look at, which would eventually be back in action. So Dante apparently didn't love the script for back in action, but he took the job because Warner Brothers weirdly reached out to him to do it. I don't even know why, yeah. but he did it in order to honor the legacy of Chuck Jones and also to prevent a Space Jam sequel from happening, which he couldn't stop completely, but he could stave off for a decade. A long time, thank God. So he signs on, and he, what he signs on to is a $100 million movie. In <laughs> fact, probably more than that, he claims, because a lot of the times these studios will not report the actual amount of money yeah. uh, for tax reasons. So mm -hmm. he thought it was probably closer to 160 <laughs> which is... <clears throat> <laughs> I don't even know if you can see it in the movie. Like, I no, mean, you can see the no, confusion because look, we'll get this out of the way real quick. Um, Looney Tunes back in action had 25 screenwriters on it. Yeah. 25 screenwriters. Is that the most ever? That might be. It is not because that's what Joe Dante wanted. That is because what the meddling studio wanted and they couldn't figure out. They just, it's crazy to think that they don't even know what the Looney Tunes are anymore. 
they were apparently mad that there was a lot of fourth wall breaking. Yeah. Which... Um, they apparently had something close to 62 rewritten endings. Holy shit. I didn't know that. Um, at one point, a quote unquote, Dante won't name this person, but a quote unquote Academy Award winning screenwriter came to a script meeting and pitched the idea that Bugs Bunny doesn't say what's up, Doc. Wow. He says, he says Bugs Bunny, he's, he's reading the first page and he goes, Bugs Bunny comes on and says, what's up, Doc? That screenwriter puts the script down and goes, or does he have to say that? <laughs> Brilliant. So there you go. They were trying to develop a Bugs Bunny movie where he doesn't say what's up, Doc, and says something like, what's up, kids? What's up? What's up, fam? <laughs> <laughs> um that's kind of interesting um the studio execs hated the area 52 scene they tried to completely take it out of the movie which is one of the uh, i mean at the whole movie is a high point but if we have to pick high points that is truly one of a handful yes it is they didn't like the parisian scenes either they really wanted to change those which is unreal um so much so that the very that when the movie came out Dante claims that they had completely changed the beginning, middle, and end of the movie, almost completely. So much was cut out of the movie. So much was reordered. Um, they released the movie. This is why I know this. They released the movie without showing it to preview audiences. Really? There were no test screenings, none of it. The studio executives saw it, said, this is what we're putting out, and they just released it. Wow. That's pretty that's pretty wild at the and it shows the contempt these fucking uh you know idiots have for this material mm-hmm. um which never be on the side of the studio people don't ever you disney people you gotta chill out it's not like we're making fun of that your brains have reverted to childhood i no, mean the, I understand that that's what's where humans are at yes but like it's your allegiance to these behemoths of industry that are they're doing anything but serve what you love anymore and always happen and always happen exactly and if that isn't enough what they explained there about the making of looney tunes back in action to like wow just like it just piss you off and draw a chill up your spine i mean the fact that they didn't market it to audiences or previous audiences is like That's wild. I mean, they didn't understand the jokes. They didn't understand what the Looney Tunes were. Um, I mean, admittedly, the movie doesn't have a lot of jokes in it. Like, I mean. And it also has, which I think is, we'll obviously do some of this in our introduction, but I think it's important to highlight to people that this movie purposefully has jokes that fall flat. Yeah. Throughout it a lot. The amount of times I've talked to people who've been like, ah, there, there's so many moments where I feel like we're building up to a laugh and it just crashes. And I was like, yes, by design. <laughs> yeah. That's part of the joke. That's part of the deconstruction. That's also part of how it speaks to keep your right up. Like there, this movie is very intentional. The things that do survive that Dante wanted to do are very intentional. <laughs> yeah, they really are. I mean, the gags are, um, they do kind of st- extend a lineage, like you're saying, to stuff like Jerry Lewis with movies like uh, uh, Cracking Up, um, The Big Mouth. 
But Let's round out fast on the positive note that we finally get to show this movie on 35 to people. We do get to show it on 35. And it's very funny that the studio, like they're taking out all these things that they don't think makes sense to them. Like fourth wall breaking allusions to other movies. I mean, like when they were apparently annoyed when he goes to, when they go to Paris, that there are posters for like Jerry Lewis movies everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, which way to the front is a poster that is featured. Um, yeah, what what does survive is hysterical. It's like, how did they miss the the stu the the whole part about studio execs interfering on a movie? Uh, I do, I truly do suspect that this movie actually turned out more deconstructionist because of how they chopped it up than it might have actually been if they just let it make it, which is kind of awesome. But <laughs> yeah, it's who knows. Pretty nuts what they do leave. <laughs> yeah, they were so busy cutting this other shit out. They missed the whole critique on them. But that's a benefit to all of us. Uh, and it shows that they don't really have any self-referential irony or humility, these people. Yep. Um, so what you get is a, is, is a really, really uh, compromised, but way more true to form of Dante and of the Looney Tunes. And this will be Dante's very last studio film. And also the last time you'll see the Looney Tunes portrayed with any care or love. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very sad in that way when the movie ends, because uh, we would have loved for good Dante to keep making movies i mean that guy's been how many projects has dante been attached to that sound amazing that just fall mm -hmm. flat and never countless. it's really countless it, it just happens till to this day you know he's attached to like a movie about the making of the trip that doesn't come out he's yep. uh yeah. he's attached to a million horror movies that all sound like they could be fun mm -hmm. they never come out um he does in 2009 i think like six or seven years after Looney Tunes back in action does the whole, which is interesting. I mean, it returns to those things that those settings and characters that he loves so much. It's not great. It's better than what is technically his last theatrical film is burying the X. Yeah. Yeah. And nightmare cinema, which is and also a bummer. Um, no, what we are, what we are is just explaining Looney Tunes back in action to you uh, and Joe Dante to kind of get you prepared for um, yeah what this movie is. And uh, there's a lot of delightful things to be seen in it. And um, once you see it, after you've let Godard's Keep Your Right Up surge through your synapses, it will actually help a lot of the flaws that you would potentially see in this movie if you watched it cold yep so this Indeed. isn't a way where we're changing how the movie is going to be seen we're giving you we're giving you a drug to help make that movie stand out for what it is because there, like you said the humor is hardly funny there's some moments but it's oh, yeah, there's still some drugs to land but yeah yeah i mean it, it is a very uh, relentless critique of uh, corporate takeover and it could almost seem kind of slight, like in a Nickelodeon way, but it really isn't, especially with what we're trying to outline with this guy's career. Um, that's the, that's the sugar that, you know, he knew how to coat his pills in mm -hmm. to 
shove down your throats. There's <laughs> two fingers. Oh, two for sure. Anyway, um, <laughs> cut that. Okay. So, <laughs> someone's a little excited for their afternoon coming up. Um, <laughs> Last thing I want to say, if you. So getting ready for this, if you don't want to watch a Tashlin movie, if you don't want to watch a different Godard movie, if you don't want to watch a Dante movie, if you don't want to reread Tristan and Shandy, um, I think the best way to get in the mood for this and what would make it an awesome triple feature, if if that was possible with highs and lows, throw on Louis Malzazi down the Metro and just get yourself in a perfect fucking mood for this type of like zany but brilliant goodness. Yeah, or hit the air duster. <laughs> yep. Those are your two choices. Yeah. <laughs> really free, really dry freeze that brain. Do, bo- do both. Yeah, do both. As he's really going to sing when you flip that bottle upside down. <laughs> <laughs> um, and find Will and I in the, if you want to share some of your uh, duster with us, find us in the uh, music box lounge. Why not? It's been a minute. I'll, I'll have some. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Will will, and I'll watch, and uh, it'll be fun. So, yeah, and please come. You know, please come chat with us. You know, yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be a good show, a really good vibe show. Um, this yeah. one's this one's definitely a, a hug of a highs and lows double bill, I would say. And I know a lot of people come up and talk to us after. We're always surrounded by our fucking our yeah, gang just... of of hangers on who we love. But um, just just hop in. They're not intimidating. We're not intimidating. A lot of you come and they you kind of meekly wave at us and say something. Come talk. We'll we'll we'll, we'll smoke a cig with you. We'll grab a beer with you. Maybe we'll get you a free beer. If you're, Probably. yeah, we're we're really we're really fun, nice people. Well, we're we're not we're fun to be around. We're we're at our most fun to be around after uh doing one of these shows so that's when you want to hit us up if you see us out in the world otherwise feel it out yeah especially <laughs> uh, you got if you want to come say hi but after one of these shows for sure come hang out <laughs> to, to our beautiful listeners that love to stop me at bars or other shows uh it's really heartwarming and don't not do it but you know just make sure you please always bring up either fuck the devil or any other such shot on video masterpiece when you talk to john because nothing makes him happier. He sends me pictures of his hard peen after because he's so happy when people bring up shot on video stuff to him. Yes, the couple that stopped me at Sportsman's to continue to make fun of that to me and to see how much it could make me angry. I mean, that's, uh, kind, of, that's kind of fucking awesome. No, I, I was leading them on to think I was mad about it, but I like it. <laughs> fun. I have fun, I have fun when, when, when that happens. Um, so... Um, yeah, I don't know. Just continue uh, Yeah, look out in December. Uh, Next wave. There's going to be some stuff coming in out. So this is the last time we're really going to talk about screenings for a little bit. Yep. Um, like you said, we have December off to plot and plan. Um, and we promise 2023 is going to be quite, quite the oscar bait takeover year it's true here we come we're we're pretty excited for that so um like i said come talk to us also if you see me at the music box and i'm not there for highs and lows 
please give us a compliment. Give me a compliment. You know, it's nice when you all come up to me while I'm uh, helping them uh, wrangle their bar, but um, bar wrangling. But I don't want to be there, so I'm not in a good mood. So uh, just you know, keep the conversation short and light. <laughs> is is that? And for some of you who've stopped me at a couple of these screens, it's short and sweet. <laughs> And they're guest bartending. I don't actually work there, but it doesn't make me want to be there, even though I love that place. Yep, that's the it's the it's the if you will the highs and lows of working in film exhibition and surrounding supporting characters of film exhibition. We fucking love it, but sometimes it's hard. So give us okay. a hug. Yeah, just yeah, just tip me extra. Yeah, or just give it to me. I'll give it to him. Yeah, I'm sure that'll happen. Um, yeah, hey, I'm, still paying, I'm still paying for the Zoom. Oh, that's true. That is true. That's a good point. We've almost evened out on those damn T-shirts by this point. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, you are now seeing us right before we get into our cocoon, our little gay cocoon. And we're not going to be little gay caterpillars anymore. We're going to be big gay butterflies. <laughs> the year of the bgbs that's right and it's gonna be uh it's gonna, We're gonna be replace kgb in your memory with bgb <laughs> right was, here with highs and lows they're all queer coded we were the first people to remind you that every king v dory film is secretly about coming out of the closet <laughs> we have the boldness to remind you all that we see not you we see that there was homosexuals and bisexuality and queer activities happening in the past. You never saw it, but we did. That's right. And we can't wait to pretend that no one has ever talked about that before in the history of the <laughs> So, If you want to hear more of that, catch us on Tuesday. <laughs> All right, bye, friends. Goodbye. <laughs>